Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to the, this episode of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Well, today we are. Have, I'm very happy to welcome on the show um, a probably distant cousin of mine. <laughs> but this is the first time that we're chatting with each other. His name is Dr. Jeffrey Lieberman, and he is a very renowned psychiatrist. Um, he's the Lawrence Cole Professor and Chairman of Psychiatry at the Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons. He's also the Director of the New York State Psychiatric Institute, and he was formerly the President of the American Psychiatric Association. And now also he's elected to the National Academy of Sciences Institute of Medicine. Well, welcome to the show, <laughs> Dr. Lieber. Thank you very much, Carol, and you can call me uh, Jeffrey. Uh, I just want to say for the audience that it's taken, I don't know how many years for me to get on Carol's show, so that just shows you that she never can be accused of nepotism. (laughs) There we go. (laughs) Well, um, the reason today I'm calling the show, um, the name of your book, actually, which is Shrink, the Untold Story of Psychiatry. And um, this is probably, (laughs) there has never been a greater need, it would seem to me, for psychiatrists than um, than now uh, for a number of crazy things going on in society. Our society is getting crazier by the moment, and psychiatrists are having more challenges, and we'll get to those. But I just want to tell you, besides probably being some distantly related cousin, um, when I read your book, fabulous, amazing uh, book, um, I, was, I, I was really taken aback by something that you said early on about how you got into psychiatry by reading as a teenager Freud's interpretation of dreams. And that's how I got into psychiatry. Well, you know, Carol, um, uh, there have been a lot of, like, very... Uh, brilliant minds uh, in the history of psychiatry, but Freud certainly stands out uh, uh, above them. And one of the reasons is, um, you know, certainly the imaginative nature of his theory, but also the fact that he was a great communicator and writer. Um, And his writing was so lucid uh, that combined with a very compelling uh, uh, thesis about uh, the structure and function of the mind it was just captivating to, to uh, uh, a huge number of people. And, um, you know, as a uh, late adolescent in college, uh, reading uh, Introduction of Dreams in my introductory psychology course, um, I you know, began to sort of understand myself because it explained how a person's mind works, how their personality develops, uh, you begin to have a greater insight. And, you know, when I would argue to my professor, with my professor repeatedly, I would think, well, wait a second, is this me with uh, acting out something from my father? Or, you know, when I would have some kind of um, repetitive pattern that was maybe self-defeating, I would be. In- so I think why it's so captivating is that it enables all people, not just people who are pre-med majors, to sort of see themselves in a way they hadn't been able to before. Well, yes, and um, I am an only child, and so going to school, you know, in kindergarten and um, being faced with a lot of kids uh, all at once of my age and trying to figure them out, like I kept trying to figure everybody out in order to be able to be liked and included and so on, and um, so I was kind of coming up with things in my head. And when I read what Freud had to say, he had put a lot of these things into, of course, a much more sophisticated way of of talking about it. But all of a sudden, it gave words to some of the things that I had been thinking about, wondering about, of course, in my, you know, kindergarten, first grade level, uh, and then a little, you know, then after, um, mind. I mean, you know, how 
in other words, um, looking back at at the struggles or the um, the things that I went through trying to understand people, and then as a teenager to read it later um, and understand it so much better from his, what he had to say. But what's interesting is that you then went on a very different path, it seems, from reading your book, um, whereas I... <laughs> I was, I guess, indoctrinated from that very first book of Freud's. I went on, um, I studied at, I did my psychiatry residency at Bellevue, and I was uh, mentored by New York psychoanalytic shrinks. And in my senior year of residency, I actually went to London and studied with Anna Freud right before she died at her clinic in London. My goodness, that's quite an experience. (laughs) Yes, I think that reflects uh, the career path that many uh, people in psychiatry and really the best and brightest in psychiatry took for you know, several decades when American psychiatry was really uh, most heavily influenced by psychoanalytic theory. But uh, I'll tell you, the, the compelling nature of his work and writing um, was both his virtue and also uh, downfall. Uh, not downfall in a sense of his personal accomplishment, but in terms of its relevance to psychiatry and mental health care. Because Freud basically was uh, a paradigm-changing individual in human history because he established the first uh, uh, model or theory of the mind which explained how human behavior evolved from the brain and the metastructures of the mind. Um, the problem is, is that it pertained to humans at a normal level or the worried well, and it didn't apply in uh, a way that it ultimately was done by his uh, uh, followers, the uh, people that were neo-Freudians and followed in his footsteps. Um, it didn't apply to serious mental illness. So when you try to map psychological theory on schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, uh, uh, depression, obsessive-compulsive disorder, autism. Uh, it just didn't work, and that really led uh, particularly American psychiatry down a garden path from which there was really no return. Well, actually, um, uh, I, I uh, practiced and I still practice, I mean, I still do psychoanalysis, I'm not psychoanalysis per se, in other words, who goes to a shrink for a three to five times a week anymore, but I do still do psychoanalytically oriented psychotherapy, and when I worked with um, schizophrenics and, and manic depressive uh, patients, I did use, and still do use, um, Freudian theory, and the difference was that, like, I even used to do groups in hospitals using doing psychoanalytically oriented groups. Um, I think that it does work, but I think that the way that the system of psychiatry is, there's no time like it's built into that. I mean, especially today, but even even back during my residency, there was uh, even though I did that, I would you know wind up being there till till late at night trying to get everything done, taking care of all my patients in this psychoanalytic kind of way. But today, with med visits, it's even more impossible. But I think, you know, just like in I Never Promised You a Rose Garden, that kind of thing, uh, the book, um, really, I think it's a very challenging and and, um, um, very fulfilling kind of task to try to understand, like understanding patients' hallucinations, for example, or delusions in a psycho in a psychoanalytic way, like they're not there. It's not a, it's not by random. It just takes a lot of work to get to it. Sure. No, and I, I don't mean to impugn uh, the utility of psychoanalytic theory, psychodynamic uh, techniques and therapy. Um, uh, I, I account it as a huge uh, asset that I have, not just in dealing with patients, but in dealing with my faculty, my peers, and everything. Um, <laughs> but, um, I, I, don't, I, I would imagine when you're treating individual schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, you're probably also using medication as adjuncts. And you're not necessarily attributing the cause of their schizophrenia to a schizophrenogenic mother. So this is where I made it well, overboard. <laughs> well, uh, that actually works in a lot of cases. But do you, are you familiar with the work of um, uh, Julian Lass, Expressed Emotion in Schizophrenia? 
Oh, sure, sure. And that's a very important concept, the, the intra-family emotional environment. Um, but look, right. I don't want to get in, into a debate with this. You know, you started to say that uh, I ultimately ended up going down another path. And the reason why that was, was, uh, yeah. I guess, ser- serendipity in the sense that I was a child of the 60s. And uh, soon after I was reading Freud and enthralled by psychoanalytic theory, um, I uh, had a, a girlfriend who introduced me to recreational drugs. Um, I was kind of a scaredy cat, so I didn't venture there on my own. But um, with her encouragement, uh, we decided to trip. Uh, and so we took some LSD, and uh, I had this extraordinary experience. So I think the only thing I have in common with Stephen Jobs is the fact that we both think that uh, LSD sort of uh, had a profound influence on our lives. But uh-huh. um, while, I was, while I was having this trip, uh, I was busily, being a, a good student, writing down my uh, uh, ostensible profound thoughts and insights. And the next day, when I pulled them out and uncrumpled them and read them, it was you know, sheer gibberish or sophomoric statements. And so that kind of punctured my bubble. But what I really did appreciate was the fact that this 50-microgram uh, tab uh, of, uh, of uh, blotter acid um, had such a profound alteration of my state of mind, and maybe that's what mm-hmm. happens when people have severe mental illness is that there's some chemical dysfunction that produces this aberration. And that's why when I ended up going to medical school and took uh, studies in addition to you know, uh, psychiatric uh, uh, didactics and, and, and psychoanalytic theory, I also took uh, courses in brain biochemistry and ultimately got interested in psychopharmacology. It's very interesting. Um, I guess um, maybe if I had, <laughs> maybe if I had done that. No, well, well, actually, that goes to some. So I know that you know that that. I mean, you talk about that in your book that um, that psychiatry has been progressing in its treatment and so on towards this more biochemical kind of view of the brain. And and um, I mean, yes, of course. I mean, um, I use medications, but. But one of the things that I feel really strongly about, and I'd love to know what you think, is how psychiatrists uh, in recent years, I mean, I don't even, maybe it started 20, 30 years ago. Uh, I mean, it's been progressive. Um, Nowadays, most psychiatrists do not even do psychotherapy. Um, They have become pill pushers. They do... Uh, med visits, which are 15 to 30 minutes, usually, usually around the 20 minute range, where um, they just ask patients about their symptoms and then pick the pill that they think would best fit with that and then tell the patient to come back in a month or two or three. And when the patient comes back and they're most often um, not fixed, you know, that didn't resolve the problem, um, then they throw another script at them, another prescription pad, um, blank, I mean, you know, a, a prescription at them, and, and add another medication. And I think, um, I'm not questioning, I mean, of course, it's, it's been amazing the impact of a lot of these medications and making patients not psychotic and so on, but, but this extreme that psychiatrists, that, that the majority of the psychiatrists, this extreme practice of not not looking into their mind at all, not trying to understand why um, they are the way they are, just dealing with the symptoms, I think has gone too far. It absolutely has, but I'd like to think it's not because of the inclinations of the psychiatrist, it's because of the nature of uh, healthcare uh, systems and service delivery, which has kind of uh, forced them into this this role. Um, You know, psychiatry is not gone to be reductionistic. Um, you know, there was a, a, a saying uh, when, uh, in the 1970s when there was this kind of um, transition process in psychiatry with the uh, emergence of psychopharmacology occurring. Uh, Morton Reiser, who was the t- dean at Yale, said, you know, for the last 50 years, our profession has been brainless, and now for the next 50, we're going to be mindless. Um, but I don't think it's, it's, it's reductionistic. I think we have a discipline that ideally should be pluralistic. 
And there's not one psychiatrist I know that doesn't really, uh, really uh, uh, want and receive tremendous gratification at being able to uh, spend time developing a relationship and uh, communicating with patients. But um, I think you know the issue is that psychiatry often gets uh, a bad rap in the sense of it um, having been uh, slow, you know, the runt of the litter, the stepchild of medicine. But the reality is, is that um, of all the organs in the body, um, which disease areas and medical specialties are based on, the brain is so exponentially more complex than any other uh, that it's the most yeah. complex organ in the animal kingdom and maybe the universe. And uh, the uh, regions of the brain and the functions of the brain that give rise to um, cognition, emotion, perception, uh, creativity, uh, uh, spirituality. Um, those are the most highly evolved portions of the brain um, that are unique to, to Homo sapiens. And so um, it's taking a long time to really figure this out. Uh, but you know, psychiatry has been you know on the on the cutting edge uh, of that and you know we're just experiencing the bumps in the road that come with acquiring knowledge well i agree with you uh, certainly about the brain but also about how um it really it's it was insurance um companies and as you were saying the structure of, of medicine um that forced well the forced psychiatrists into i mean in other words there was no way that a psychiatrist could make if, if all that a psychiatrist was doing for work was seeing patients and doing, you know, 50 minutes of psychotherapy with each patient the way they used to and the way I still do, I actually will not see a patient unless they will come to me for weekly psychotherapy. And, yes, I give them medication if they also need medication. But, but I just, um, I just well, think well, can, can, Carol, can, can I, Carol, I, I don't want to be uh, impolite, particularly to a, uh, uh, a relative, but um, can I ask you what might be a, a probative question? Sure. Um, so, yes. What is the pay? What is the payer mix of your patients? How many are paying out of pocket, and how many are are uh, are, are covered by their insurance, or even better I yet, Medicaid be, I, or Medicare? Okay, I will be happy to answer that. We do need to take a break now, but you can ask me anything that you want. So stay tuned, everybody. Uh, my guest is Dr. Jeffrey A. Lieberman. His book is called Shrinks, The Untold Story of Psychiatry, and he is the person to write such a, um, a comprehensive, thorough, well-thought-out book like this because um, he is well-traveled in the area of psychiatry. So stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com 
These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll free at 1 866 472 5788. Now back to the show. Here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. With me today is Dr. Jeffrey A. Lieberman, who is a very distinguished psychiatrist and the author of a book called Shrinks, The Untold Story of Psychiatry. And um, before the break, uh, he was asking me about my the composition of my patients in terms of their method of payments. And I'll be honest, you know, when I started out, um, I, young and naive, uh, I, you know, took everybody, all kinds of insurance and, and, uh, Medicare, Medi-Cal, um, you know, everything. And then I quickly saw that, um, if you take insurance, not only, not only can't you make a living, but, um, but you spend more time filling out the forms for the various insurance companies than you do seeing patients. And then to top it off, um, soon then they, they made these panels or these where they would have social workers telling me that my suicidal patient only needed five sessions. And that was the end. So that was it. There was no way I was going to have to justify to a social worker why my patients needed more sessions. So to answer your question, um, the majority of my patients are private pay. Um, and those that have insurance, I actually do make them pay up front, and then I give them a receipt. And if they would like to send in these receipts to get reimbursed by their insurance, they are welcome to do it. But I prefer seeing patients and doing other things connected with being a psychiatrist than being a secretary sending in um, forms, which, by the way, then get rejected, and then you have to send many more times for the same thing. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Our system well, is and, ridiculous. And, 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 and the fact that uh, the best psychiatrists like yourself can have a busy, uh, active caseload or, or a roster of patients who are willing to do that pay-out-of-pocket shows how great the demand is. Um, but the unfortunate thing is, is that people who are less financially able, who are on Medicaid, uh, can't. And, and, and no matter, despite the fact that there was passed in 2008 the Mental Health Parity Act, insurance companies haven't complied. So, uh, you know, unfortunately, um, uh, I, uh, you know, uh, of the limited number of uh, articles I've written for the lay media, the one that's gotten the most hits and been the most popular is... Um, the, uh, it was titled, The Profession That Everybody Needs But Nobody Wants or Can Pay For or Has Insurance That Can Pay For. <laughs> and and that's, that's the reality. But, yes, I can see why that would be popular. At the same time, um, the uh, value that psychiatry has as the most uh, highly trained and uh, knowledgeable um, discipline within the uh, spectrum of mental health care professionals, the, the value that they add to individual health care or health care systems is, is enormous. Um, the country has been for some time and still is you know, very concerned about how to contain health care costs. And if you talk about, uh, if you talk to any uh, respectable, knowledgeable healthcare economists, they will tell you that mental health care is the secret sauce to cost yes. containment and, and reduction in uh, overuse of services. Um, the problem is, is that this, this um, known 
uh, fact is not translated into changes in policy or in uh, our healthcare financing system. And, yes, and, and we see know, the consequences. We, we, we see the consequences all around us. It's not just in the burgeoning healthcare costs or, you know, the uh, excessive readmissions or length of stays in hospitals or comorbidity, but you see it in the, what I call the social pathologies that are the tips of the iceberg, homelessness, uh, addiction, uh, rising suicide rates, um, the increased number of people with mental illness who are in prisons, and, uh, of course, the most egregious of all, which are these instances of mass violence perpetrated by some people with mental disorders that aren't receiving treatment. Yes, absolutely. Um, I guess just to sort of, um, just one more point about, I mean, yes, it was insurance companies and, and the problem of, of the healthcare system, um, but I, I guess I still, I still wonder and and um, am frustrated by the fact that psychiatrists didn't um, protest more, didn't strike, didn't didn't do something, and just laid down and let this um, you know this this un, unrealistic and unhelpful um, healthcare system walk over us. That's the thing. Like why? I, I look at my, you know, at, at colleagues and just wonder why did why did you just bow down to down to the insurance companies? Why we should have put up a fight? I, I agree, Carol. I I I I spent my the first twenty five thirty years of my career I spent doing research. You know, just kind of a lab rat. Uh, you know, nerds, you know, focusing on, on research and publishing papers. And when I took the chair of Columbia and I became, in effect, the CEO of a, a large enterprise that had to provide services, training, negotiate contracts with insurance companies, deal with regulatory agencies and uh, oversight agencies, I became radicalized. And I said, this is nuts. And so I ran for president of the American Psychiatric Association and I won. And I thought, maybe I'll have a platform that gives me a voice to try and push back. But after two years in Washington, uh, I found out that it's really a huge, huge challenge to try and change things uh, because of the fact that the government is really driven by so many special interests and uh, you know, large uh-huh. donor uh, influences. And uh, the media does not do a good enough job revealing the reality. So you're right, uh, uh, the uh, business of medicine has rolled over us, but it's rolled over us and it's rolled over all of our other colleagues and, and, and other specialties as well. But, you know, we feel it maybe most of all because of this. And so uh, I think that um, uh, there are ways to push back, but in my experience, most of the most innovative uh, and uh, uh, just inspirational types of initiatives in healthcare um, are being done from the ground up as opposed to the top down. For example, I was just yeah. in a meeting uh, uh, on Monday in Miami where uh, a judge named Stephen Leifman, uh, who was uh, a major figure in trying to establish mental health courts to divert uh, mentally ill persons who commit crimes to get mental health care instead of going to jail, he has established a comprehensive 200-plus bed facility for people who the police pick up who are clearly mentally ill but committed a crime, and instead of taking them to jail, they take them to this hospital. Um, so these are the kind of things which are really impressive, but if you look in your own city, yeah. the L.A. County Jail, the L.A. County Jail is probably the biggest mental health provider in, in, in the county yes. of Los Angeles. Yes, and they don't do a very good job. Um, you know, I, I feel strongly about how um, state mental hospitals should be brought back. That it was the, We all know, you and I know, that it was the closure of the state mental hospitals that um, was the biggest contributor to the fact that there are mentally ill homeless and mentally ill in jails and so on. And I don't know, do you think we've gone too far to bring back the state mental hospitals? I definitely think uh, we went too far. Deinstitutionalization was a good idea, but poorly executed, and we're, we paid the, the price for it ever since with a whole variety of consequences. And uh, the fact that we don't have adequate I mean, community-based... 
I mean, do you think no, we, I, can, I, I, do you I think I think I, I, I think we do need to have an increase long term. Uh, a long-term bed capacity until we figure out ways to rehabilitate people who have sustained the deterioration that uh, chronic mental illnesses can cause. Um, How you roll that back, though, is is another matter. But listen, Carol, I want to bring up, before we run out of time, something that I think we'll we'll find a point of of nexus between our respective career paths. Um, So, you know, you uh, have pursued... Uh, a career in, in, in clinical psychiatry and emphasize the skills you learn psychotherapeutically along with uh, other uh, modes of treatment. And I have pursued kind of a research uh, career in, in psychopharmacology and neurobiology. But um, having been a child of the 60s, having remembered what psychedelics were all about, and now observing their uh, resurgence in terms of interest uh, in the way mm-hmm. of uh, clinical trials that are being done uh, in some cases in UCLA, I believe, and NYU at Hopkins in various indications like for palliative care or addiction, um, and also the uh, uh, ad hoc use by Silicon Valley habitués in microdosing, mm-hmm. um, which I don't necessarily approve of, but um, I see if these uh, substances are rigorously studied in the way that uh, was kind of truncated in the 70s with their prohibition, that this could provide a very valuable psychotherapeutic adjunct, that the combination of these with uh, probative psychotherapy could be a big uh, asset to treating things, including uh, personality disorders, which, as you know, are very, very difficult to treat. Well, um, I have a little more... um, I, I have a little more hesitation when it comes to those kinds of drugs. I mean, I know they're being tested, and that's great to, to have opportunities to maybe find something that can do even more than what we have. But I'm, I just am skeptical, I guess, is the word. Um, but I, I, and I, 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 am, I, I am skeptical, too, um, and there's no evidence yet that shows it. But, for example, um, uh, when you treat people with uh, personality disorders, whether it's narcissistic or uh, antisocial um, or you know, borderline, um, these are very difficult patients that require a lot of uh, uh, effort and uh, oftentimes you know, sort of long-term uh, courses of, of treatment. And if there was something that could be facilitative, that would be, that would be good. But, of course, there needs to be evidence sure. to show that it's real as opposed to wishful thinking. Sure. Um, I mean, just to go back to something you had said a little while ago about uh, psychiatry being the secret sauce, um, yes, you know, if, if we were able to treat, if there were more people who were able to get psychiatric treatment, let's put it that way, um, that would create less people who had medical problems and the medical parts of the medical system, uh, you know, the physical medicine parts, uh, would be less overcrowded or less, you know, there, there wouldn't have to be as much money spent on physical disorders if we treated exactly. medical, mental disorders uh, exactly. more appropriately and completely. Yes. I just want to mention something about the APA. Actually, that was on my, uh, <laughs> I had wanted to be president of the APA, so I'm glad A. Lieberman did it. Um, when I was a resident, I organized the first uh, APA, or the first, I guess, New York um, residency division of the APA. Wow. I don't know if that's, you were ever aware that, of that, but... That, no, I haven't. I could have, I could have uh, taken familial credit for it. <laughs> yes, I had residents from all the New York hospitals, you know, psychiatry programs, and we met, I think, like once a month, and we, yes, we operated like a mini APA, and I was also very much involved on the AP for years on the APA um, publicity national publicity committee, but I ultimately well, had to. I'm sorry. No, that, 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 no, that's that's important. But you want to know something? Well, first of all, I think from the resident standpoint, you know, you're at work there. You should be very happy that um, the numbers of medical students going into psychiatry is on the upswing, 
And secondly, not only are there more numbers of medical students going into psychiatry, but they're better than ever. Um, uh, and so that's uh, a very positive sign. In terms of the media, uh, I know which uh, committee or council you're referring to. Um, my concern about the APA's um, media uh, voice or, 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 or activities is they, they tend to stay away from controversy. And um, yes, yes. You know, sometimes, you, sometimes you have to uh, express views and take stands that are important. And that's, if you're too politically uh, careful, that's, that's, not, that's not the best thing. Yes. Well, I mean, I, when I was doing that, it was a little while back. But the reason why I stopped, not only the committee, but stopped being a member of the APA, was because they had that rule. When they enacted that rule, which was a while ago, about how you are not allowed to talk about people in the media who you haven't examined as a patient. And, of course, you're not allowed to talk about your patients in the media. So, basically, you're not allowed to talk about anybody. And since I do... I do a lot of media um, because I, it is, my passion is to um, share different insights, you know, psychoanalytic especially, uh, but to share different insights with more people than I could ever see in my office. That was my, my intent before I even went to medical school. And so I, that's what I do a lot of now. Um, and so when they when the APA made that rule, you know, I couldn't continue to be a member because I would be in violation of that. Well, I, I think I'm not going to ask you the obvious question of what you think about our president's mental state, but um, that seems oh, to be the. Yeah, uh, that, that's fine. That's fine. We can do that when we come back <laughs> because I think you and I, from some article that I read, I think you and I, I hope you and I agree about that. We will see, folks, so stay tuned. My guest is Dr. Jeffrey A. Lieberman. He is the author of Shrinks, the Untold Story of Psychiatry. So stay tuned. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Tune into the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman with my very esteemed guest, Dr. Jeffrey A. Lieberman, and uh, amongst his other uh, accomplishments, he's the author of a book called, the Un- called Shrinks, The Untold Story of Psychiatry. Um, you know, we've left people on cliffhangers both, for both of the, uh, of the breaks, and we didn't plan this, folks, <laughs> even though we may be related, we didn't plan it. 
but you left them uh, the first cliffhanger. How, what, how do I make my patients pay me cash or pay me, period? <laughs> or do I take insurance? And then this last one, what do I think about Trump's mental health? So I actually um, think that this group of psychiatrists, and mostly it's not psychiatrists, it's mostly like psychologists and other mental health professionals, but a group um, that wrote a book and is um, claiming, you know, that uh, President Trump is mentally unfit to be president, and they are trying to use the 25th Amendment, and they are, um, you know, claiming that he is a, a malignant narcissist, not just... Of course, they aren't, just because they wrote this book and try to get it everywhere. They're not malignant narcissists. Um, I, I do not. I believe that he is mentally fit, not only mentally fit to lead the country, but that he has done an incredible job so far, and um, and hopefully will continue with all the dogs um, nipping at his heels ever since, even before he actually formally took the office. What do you think? Well, um, I'm going to take a very clinical view uh, and also a scholarly view. Um, So uh, Trump's um, behavior since he's been in office has been unconventional, to say the least. Uh, And, you know, he's defied sort of traditional norms and, um, you know, continued to uh, act in a way that isn't necessarily consistent with traditional norms. uh, conduct of uh, the president's um, to say that equates with mental illness is really uh, unwarranted and a stretch. Um, apart from anything that he may do or how he acts that you might equate with anything that would uh, reflect mental illness, um, if you just look at history, okay, here's a guy who grew up, he went to school, he passed everything. Uh, he went to college, he graduated, uh, he became successful in uh, a rough and tumble industry and um, you know, climbed the ladder of success. And however you may question you know, what means he used, regardless, you know, he was quite successful. And then he was on television, became a television personality. Um, and then he uh, parachuted into the political process, which nobody uh, since Ross Perot showed any ability to be able to do, uh, um, and then uh, won. Um, In that context, he showed himself to be somebody who was a teetotaler because of his brother uh, being an alcoholic, uh, who had tremendous energy and stamina, um, didn't need a lot of sleep, and never got sick. Um, So this person, uh, whatever you may feel about him personally, had considerable assets and abilities um, so uh, to label a somebody because of their uh, unconventional behavior as mentally ill um, is, is really uh, uh, pretty um, uh, unjustified and, 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 and glib or, or, or uh, you know, to put it another way, it's being, you're using a clinical term for uh, political ideological purposes. Um, now, exactly. the other thing that I would... The other thing, and, and that's and that's that's what the Goldwater Amendment was all about, because Barry Goldwater was uh, savaged in a way that was totally unjustified by psychiatrists, uh, um, you know, many years prior. And Goldwater ultimately sued um, the magazine that published that opinion and, and won the case. Um, now, uh, full disclosure, um, I was an advisor. Uh, to Hillary Clinton in terms of mental health policy. Um, and I was in, at the, uh, an election night. I was in the Javits Center, you know, uh, anticipating what would have been a victory speech and watching it change. Um, so I, I'm not coming at this as a, uh, somebody who was, you know, politically sort of oriented. But uh, in, all, in order to be truthful to my profession and, and professional integrity, uh, you have to, you know, be objective, and that's the way I would see it. But on the other hand, if there were concerns, then there are constitutional mechanisms that could be employed. Uh, the first thing is that every year, a president undergoes a uh, medical examination, and the medical examination 
certainly doesn't have to stop from at the neck. It can include, you know, evaluation of brain function, mental function, etc. So there's a means to determine whether that is the case. Um, and then there is the 25th Amendment. Um, and uh, uh, the 25th Amendment has never been exercised in the case of the uh, fourth clause that would pertain to to uh, uh, a sitting president. The closest it came was with President Reagan uh, when he had recovered from his assassination attempt and uh, Howard Baker was his chief of staff and there were concerns about uh, Reagan because of the fact he would uh, dot off and fall asleep in meetings or he wouldn't follow the, uh, the, the uh, thread of the discussion. Um, but they held a cabinet meeting to collectively evaluate you know, how he functioned and um, maybe because of his uh, thespian background, you know, he rose to the occasion and he you know, showed that he was the same, you know, Dutch that had won the election. Um, and so nothing was done. So in any event, there's remedies to deal with it to make odd ha- to, uh, to, to th- throw ad hominem diagnoses from afar uh, is really just political partisanship. And when people like the individuals you were referring to, Carol, um, who wrote that book about the dangerous case of uh, President Trump, um, uh, what I would say, and they claim that they're doing it as an act of patriotism, I would remind them of Samuel Johnson's quote that patriotism is the last refuge of scoundrels. (laughs) Oh, that's good. (laughs) Well, you know... um, I mean, there's no question that President Trump is like a bull in a china shop, which I think is part of the reason why I like him. I kind of identify with that. But he has got, being a bull in a china shop, I mean, yes, you know, you could say, well, maybe he could uh, think twice about some of his tweets or whatever. But but he has been able, because of that personality, he has been, and because of his experience and everything else, he has been able to get so much more done. I mean, I, I he shocks a lot of people and he's always shocking people but like even in Europe you know, or at various meetings where different nations come together they haven't seen an American president be like he is and they're all kind of like their jaws are on the floor but that's okay because that's how he gets things done for America even this whole thing of like uh, make, make America great or America first you know, like, you're not supposed to say that. Like, that's a bad thing. Really? I would want my president to think uh, America first. And and the real thing about, um, ethical thing about uh, why this is bad is because these this group of therapists um, are pretending to, to analyze him psychiatrically uh, when really it is just a polit- They're using their credentials as psychiatrists, psychologists, and other kinds of therapists, they're using those credentials to make proclamations about Trump's mental health when, in fact, it's really just uh, their politics. It's just because they, you know, they want to get rid of him, and they're hiding behind or, or taking advantage of, really, uh, their credentials as to why everybody else should believe them. And I agree. I mean, you could imagine the same kind of scenario if somebody was, you know, like Bernie Sanders was elected or somebody who was an extreme liberal. But um, I'll tell you, you know, there's another issue that uh, this whole discussion brings up, which is um, uh, what kind of uh, vetting in terms of uh, a person's, uh, uh, you know, health should um, candidates undergo prior to taking office? So, you know, if you are going to play professional sports, if you're going to be a CEO of a company, if you are trying to get life insurance, um, you have to undergo a certain type of uh, medical assessment. Um, and that factors into your candidacy or your, 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 your uh, eligibility for the position or the, uh, the policy. Um, when individuals are running for president, uh, there's no systematic process, and we've seen you know uh, debates uh, uh, you know, break out about are you going to reveal your medical records, are you going to release this, or who are you going to get a letter from, and so forth. Um, should there be so when Paul Songus was running for uh, president uh, some years ago and it was revealed that he had cancer, that really uh, kind of. Uh, 
scotched his his, his candidacy when when um, uh, George McGovern picked uh, vice president. Uh, um, I forget his name from Missouri, Tom Tom Eagleton. I mean, and it was revealed that Eagleton had a past history of depression. You know, uh, he had to withdraw from 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 the ticket. Um, so rather than have these things leak out, you know, shouldn't there be some systematic process? And in that process would include, you know, evaluation of a person's neurological and psychiatric status. Um, I think that would make sense to when you're going to assume the position of the most powerful person in the Western world. Well, yes, but, like, the, I think the problem would be finding someone or a group of people, a small group of people, to actually make objective decisions on that and and right. who are not um, politically motivated. That's the problem. You know, oh we're going to have oh this with this current election where people already, they're talking about, you know, I mean, we all know Bernie Sanders had a heart attack and he's not releasing his medical records. And then Biden, um, there are all these jokes in the media about his having dementia and stuff. Some are not, some are saying it more seriously than jokes. But, I mean, so there are quest- current questions. Um in terms of yeah. the so, so, candidates. So, so you, you, I, I can see where you're going with this. You'd have to have a bipartisan group of physicians <laughs> for interpreting the, the, the medical exam, <laughs> which, uh, which in right. itself might uh, pose a challenge. <laughs> and who's going to look at their mental health? <laughs> I think I have well, a solution. I think you and I should be the ones <laughs> in charge of this, deciding who's healthy and who's not. Well, yeah. Okay, go ahead, Carol. We're kind of at the end, but well, we're kind of at the end. I was just going to say, uh, unfortunately, we have to end the show. But I am, I would be happy to have you on again, um, we, to talk about more of your book or whatever is going on in society that people are are going, getting crazier and crazier about, which is why we need more and better shrinks. Um, so, but we do unfortunately have to end for today. So I'd like to thank my guest um, very much, Dr. Jeffrey A. Lieberman. Again, his book is Shrinks, The Untold Story of Psychiatry, and we have just, we have just uh, skimmed the surface. It is an amazing um, historical and descriptive and thoughtful book, so I would recommend it. And thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat. 